The gospel reading this morning is from John chapter 11, verses 1 through 54, which is to say it's very long and worth it, and so stay with me. I won't tell you because you've figured it out already that this is the sermon text. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary, and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. And after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and are you going there again? Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest and sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. So Thomas called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console with them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, 
who is coming into the world. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, Where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, See how he loved him. But some of them said, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me. But I said this on account of the people standing here, that they might believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to him, unbind him and let him go. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. And some of them went to the Pharisees, however, and told him that Jesus, what he had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered in council and said, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people and not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord. But being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. From that day on, 
they made plans to put him to death. Jesus, therefore, no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness in a town called Ephraim, and there he stayed with the disciples. This is the gospel. Thank you, Bruce. Somehow you always get roped into reading the long passages that I preach, which is great. Dave, I'm going to awkwardly put on this lapel mic and use this one until I do that. Um, good morning. My name is Sam. I am an assistant pastor here. Mike is our pastor. Uh, you'll see him at the Lord's uh, Supper. Not like the last one, but this, this one that we're going to do after this. Um, he's still with us. Um, we're back in John today. We, we've taken a few weeks off from Easter. Mike's led us in a series called Living the Resurrection. And I just, I mean, you might think we planned some of these things, right? That we're transitioning back into John with the story of Lazarus. Um, but we did it. It just worked out that way. The Lord worked it out that way, which is great. So I'm, I'm going to kind of use this, um, use this sermon as a transition between our mini-series that Mike just led us in on living the resurrection back into, into John. So we're going to walk through this story in two chunks that you can see in the sermon title, kind of the weeping of Jesus and the laughter of Lazarus. I'll explain that a little bit later, but uh, those two chunks are answering two questions I'm going to ask this morning. One, how do we respond to death? How do we respond to death? Two, how do we respond to life? Two questions, two chunks. If that doesn't make any sense now, that's fine. Just track with us. We're just going to walk through the story together, okay? Uh, we are in John 11. Like I said, if you can follow along, that would be helpful because I'm not going to reread every part of that. It is long, um, but it would be helpful if, if you were kind of tracking with me. So right at, at the beginning of our story, we see Jesus um, introduced as friends with uh, these three people, Lazarus, Mary, and Martha, that are siblings, and they live in the same town. Jesus is friends with them. It says repeatedly throughout our story that Jesus loved them. It's very particular. It's very exact. It's repeating that again and again. And that kind of language is, is usually, in the Gospels, reserved for the disciples. Like John is the, you know, he's, he's the beloved one. This, this kind of reads like Jesus had, he was kind of in a tight-knit friend group with these people. They obviously see Jesus as a rabbi, and even more than a rabbi, as we'll see. And in Jewish culture, um, reading the, the, the Talmud, Talmud says that a disciple would carry the rabbi's baggage. Um, disciple sometimes prepared food to his liking, provided him with money for his needs, protected him, and could not contradict his rabbi. That's, that's what a good disciple does with a, with a rabbi. And yet, while Jesus is a rabbi, he's not like this higher-up spiritual authority, right? He's, he's also a friend. He's also a friend who loves them, and not just in a vague, oh, I love all of my loyal followers, right? It's, a, it's not that kind. It's a friend kind of love that Jesus shows here. And these sisters, Mary and Martha, they send a message to Jesus. Your beloved friend, Lazarus, he's really sick. And Jesus is very clear. Look at verse 4, right up front. There's a purpose here. There's purpose here. 
This won't ultimately, what, what he's saying here is not that Lazarus won't die in verse 4, but he's saying it won't ultimately end in death. Even in the deepest brokenness and grief, I want you to see what God can do. And that actually gives us a good explanation of the timeline here. If you look at verses 5 and 6, the so in verse 6 always kind of trips people up. It's, it's, it strikes people. Because if we read verse 5, so it says, Jesus loves Mary and Martha and Lazarus. So, when he heard that Lazarus was ill, then you probably think right after that it would say something about Jesus hightailed it over there so he could help Lazarus. No, it doesn't say that. It says he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Why? You read this from the Talmud. For the first three days... After death, this is this is kind of um, Jewish rabbinical um, writing. It's it's a lot of this is mystical writing, so this is not scripture. What I'm about to read, but this is what a lot of people believed about death. Okay, just to have that preface for the first three days after death, the soul floats above the body, thinking that it will return to the body. When the soul sees the body, that the appearance of the face is changed, it leaves the body and goes its way. So, now, do I think that's true? No, I don't think that's true. But that was a common perspective around the time. So, Jesus waits. So, I'm going to do a little bit of math here. It's not hard math, but I'm bad at math. Jesus waits two days, and then when he gets to Lazarus, he's there four days after Lazarus has died. So, that means that he was there. Even if he would have left, he would have gotten there two days after Lazarus died. So, Jesus leaves immediately, gets there two days after. Lazarus is dead for two days. Would Jesus have raised Lazarus after two days? Would that have still been astounding? Yes, of course it would have been astounding. And Jesus does that. Um, He he, uh, raises a couple other people in the Gospels um, very closely after their death a couple times. It's astounding. But for a lot of the Jews who believe that about the soul, that the soul kind of sticks around for three days would have still been within the realm of hope and possibility of resuscitation. Jesus says, no. I'm going to wait till there's no hope here. I'm going to wait till you don't have, you don't see any possibility of souls floating around. We're going to wait till he's dead, dead. And we're going to see what God can do. So Jesus waits two days. He says, let's go. And the disciples say, Jesus, they're, they're you know, in this area, they're, they're looking to stone you. And Jesus does something very Jesus-like. He gives an illustration of the day and the night, um, which basically means that um, while he's still working, it's day. Uh, When his time is appointed to die, he will die. But right now it's day, and they're working, and they'll be okay. And they obviously miss that because when they leave, in verse 16, Thomas is like, all right, let's go die. We're going to go die with Jesus. Jesus doesn't correct him, which I think is a little hilarious. And then he tells them, Jesus knows, Jesus is God, he knows that Lazarus is dead. Lazarus died. They start the journey, and Jesus, once Jesus gets there, he steps into this grieving community. Noah kind of mentioned the the difference between um, how Jesus responds to these uh, two different um, ways of of grieving. So let's, let's look at this. First, Martha runs out to meet Jesus. She says in verse 21, Lord, if you had been here, 
my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. So she displays some faith here, and, and she's kind of processing this theologically, right? Like, she's talking to Jesus, and she's processing this. What, where, where's God here? And Jesus said, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. So Martha's kind of got this response of like, yeah, I know. I, I mean, intellectually, I know that on the last day, he's going to rise up at the same time everybody else who believes will. Now, the Sadducees denied that, but other groups believed in the physical resurrection around this time, and Jesus' ministry had confirmed that. So she acknowledges, she's thinking, that's what Jesus is talking about, what we call this final resurrection later. And maybe she's even seeing this as kind of like an abstract thing. Yeah, Jesus, I know that. But Jesus said to her, I, so I am statement, I am the resurrection and the light. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God who is coming into the world. So Jesus is saying, yeah, resurrection is a future event. But it's more than a future event. It's a person. Wherever Jesus is present, resurrection and life are present. He is the one making all things new. Presently standing before him and before her, and he's about to show that. So she goes and she gets Mary. Mary falls to his feet. She says the same first sentence that Martha did. If you had been here, my brother would have lived. Without any of the, you know, she, she doesn't attach a lot of the theological processing that Martha had. Some have interpreted that as indicating she had less faith. I, I don't see that here. I'm not so sure. Look with me at uh, verse 33. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. So I, I want to talk, I'm going to do a kind of a side on the, on the word that is translated deeply moved. And it's just one word in Greek. It's translated um, deeply moved in spirit in your Bibles. So I was, I was looking this up. It was a word I wasn't familiar with. So I was kind of looking it up, doing a word study looking at what the dictionaries, lexicons, and other places it's used in and outside the Bible. And I was confused as to why it was translated deeply moved in spirit. Uh, I don't usually like contradicting the, the translations that you have in front of you. Um, they're good translations, right? But they are translations done by academics out of the, um, out of, out of the original Greek. And, um, you know, I didn't want to sound like one of those preaching lab students that I heard in my first year that knew like 30 words of Greek and yet were, you know, contradicting the um, panels of PhDs that put your Bibles into English. Um, but then I saw uh, D.A. Carson and Tim Keller and some other people that basically argued that it was lexically indefensible to translate it deeply moved. And so I was like, okay, I guess I can say this. He was deeply moved, yes. With what? He was deeply moved with anger. That's what that word means. He was angry. He was enraged. It means a lot. It's, very, it's much closer to meaning something more like enraged. And not just in general, but to be indignant at, to be enraged at something or someone in particular. So the question we have here, if, if Jesus at this point, it, it almost reads weird, and maybe that's why they translate it that way, I don't know, but... It almost reads kind of, kind of weird in this particular circumstance. So 
Who's Jesus mad at? Is he mad at himself? I don't think so. Is he mad at Mary and Martha? Those who are weeping? I think the, 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 our story indicates that that's definitely not the case. Who's Jesus mad at? I know this is going to sound like a hard pivot here, but um, we got any fans of The Office in here? Any, any people watch that? Yeah, a few of you. A few of you. I've been reading um, a memoir by the actor who plays Dwight Schrute. Um, his name is Rain Wilson. Um, he's actually got a lot in common with Dwight Schrute. He's a very interesting person. Uh, he belongs to the somewhat small religion called the Baha'i Faith, and it was founded by Persian mystics in the 1800s. Um, the Baha'i view on death, which is something that Rain talks about a lot. He just did some interviews with like USA Today and some other high-profile things. Um, the Baha'i faith view on death is that our souls are like birds and our bodies are like cages. And what death does is it frees the soul to flutter away and um, join the, the spiritual realm. That actually, you know, of course, that's not a new idea. That goes back to Plato. That goes back to Socrates. And it's been popular in many worldviews since then, including some Christians who unfortunately picked that, some of that stuff up. The view is death is freedom. It's good freedom. In our secular age today, people without faith have tried to view death as a natural part of the universe. It's just another part of the biological processes fitting into everything else. And so it's something to be greeted as kindly as any other natural process. Herbert uh, Fingeret was a philosopher who was nicknamed the philosopher of death because he focused on thinking about death. And in a 1996 book, he argued that fearing one's own death was irrational. When you die, he says, there is nothing. Why should we fear death if we don't even want to experience it? But then that philosopher got closer to the onset of his own nothing. And in 2020, The Atlantic filmed a short documentary with the 97-year-old Fingeret. And the documentary noted, death began to frighten him, and he couldn't think himself out of it. There's also moder- uh, kind of a modified version of secularism that I think, and I'm not a prophet, uh, but I, I think will eventually be the dominant worldview of Gen Z and the generation after Gen Z. I hope and pray I, for a revival. I work for a revival. I want revival, but I'm just talking about what I see kind of trending. is what I'd call an enchanted secularism. Enchanted secularism, meaning we still don't believe in God, but we want the objectively real beauty and truth and goodness. We, we, we still don't believe in God, but we want these other medical, metaphysical things that are sometimes um, attached to belief in God. We still want beauty and truth and goodness and meaning. And so they try to, enchanted secularists, try to repaint death into something beautiful and good. You're flowing into the universe. I'm a fan of... Um, horror movies and TV shows. I don't know if that's weird to say or not, but um, I have a favorite director. His name is Mike Flanagan, um, and I describe him as an enchanted secularist. Through his many movies and series, you'll find characters contemplating death in these kind of gobbledygook-filled monologues um, about how we came from stardust, and then we decompose back into the earth, and we feed life, and we're absorbed into the oneness of the natural world and the universe. In his show... Um, Mike Flanagan's show, The Midnight Club, there were kids who all had terminal diseases and they were living together, and they saw ghosts and monstrous shadows coming toward them. 
It only lasted for one season. Don't you love that? You watch a season of a TV show, it gets canceled. Um, got canceled, so he explained what all of these things actually meant. And he said that um, the, the shadow creatures weren't death, but they were the character's view of death, their reluctance of death, their revulsion of death. Death, the character of death in the show was actually the, the kind janitor that gently cared for each one of them and transitioned with them into the nothingness. Death was a friend. So, outside of Christianity, we have death is freedom, death is natural nothingness, death is beautiful, death is a friend. But when Jesus encounters death here, his response to death is not, oh, hey, it's been a while. His response to death is rage. At the thought of his friend's lifeless body laying in the tomb, Jesus comes face to face with humanity's enemy that has cursed us ever since Genesis 3. In fact, the word here, the word translated deeply moved in spirit, actually, um, probably, it probably started out with horses that gave angry snorts. And there's, there's uh, times where this word is used uh, in talking about war horses that give angry snorts when they're about to go into battle when they see the enemy on the other side. Beyond the obvious answers, asking I'm I'm kind of trying to fill out why is death bad here? Why is death bad? You may have heard a quote by C.S. Lewis. You do not have a soul. You are a soul. You have a body. That wasn't C.S. Lewis, if you could tell by my air quotes. And he wouldn't say that. Because God made you body and soul. Beautifully knit together by God, and that's good. God didn't give you a body as, a, as um, a cage that your soul is to be freed from. When in, in, in Scripture, in the New Testament, when it talks about the flesh, and it talks about the sinfulness of the flesh, and the flesh being bad, that's talking about our sinful natures manifesting themselves in our bodily actions. That's not saying that this is bad. God made us body and soul beautifully knit together. That's what some theologians call psychosomatic unity. Herman Bavink called it holistic dualism. And death, so God beautifully knits our body and soul together, and death is the violent separation of body and soul, of soul from the body. As a final, and a final effect, final consequence of the fall, death is a tearing apart of what God put together to be made good. And he says it's very good. So when Mary said to Jesus, his body's over there. And Jesus thinks of his friend's soulless body. He's angry. Shouldn't be like this. This isn't how the world I made you was meant to be. I'm sure you remember the first time you really encountered death. Maybe not the first funeral or the first time you heard the word. But when you grappled, really grappled with the concept of, of death. I was friends in high school with this guy named Tavante Woods. He was actually the son of a, um, a former uh, NFL Hall of Fame running back um, named Icky Woods. We ran track together, and um, I, I would pass him the baton on the 4 by 8 and he had asthma. One day, 16, one day he had an asthma attack. Inhaler wasn't where it was supposed to be. 
he died. And I saw his lifeless body at the funeral. And if you would have walked in that funeral and told us, hey, it's okay, death, death is a, it's a freeing of the soul, it's a friend, it's a sweet nothing, you might have got punched in the nose. Death is an enemy. That perspective is one of the many times, the, the, the Christian perspective on death is one of the many times that it actually just gives word to something that we naturally know to be true in our hearts. Let the other spiritual gurus beautify death. Jesus is enraged by it, and he greets it as an angry war horse who's about to do battle. Jesus is also showing us a little bit of how to mourn here, as Noah alluded to. He's more than just our rabbi, but he certainly isn't less. And as um, the Christian philosopher Dallas Willard calls, uh, calls us apprentices of Jesus, and as apprentices of Jesus, we can see how he's teaching us to respond to death here. When Martha comes in her grief, wanting to process it theologically with him, he, he talks with her, he tells her the truth. Yes, I'm the resurrection and the life. Death will die. But when Mary comes with a simple mourning, simple statement, if you had been here, Jesus, and then she leads him into this group of people who were all mourning together loudly, what does Jesus do? Rebuke, challenge, exhort them? No. He was deeply moved by anger, and then he wept. And why did he question it? Why, why does he weep? If he knows, he, he said from the beginning of our story what was going to happen, so he knows what's going to happen. Why did he weep? I think there's two reasons I'd throw out there. One, the pain of death. Like I just said, this is not how it's supposed to be, even for a moment. We were meant to be whole body and soul living before the Lord. He was weeping for Lazarus. Two, they were weeping. He wept because they were weeping. The people who loved, who were loved by Jesus were mourning and Jesus mourned with them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn isn't just a random bit of advice that Paul throws in Romans 12. It's a part of being apprentices of Jesus following our rabbi. Sometimes people in mourning will need theological discussion or encouragement that actually is helpful sometimes. Sometimes you just need to sit with someone and weep with them, mourn with them, grieve with them without words. And how do we know what to do? We listen. We listen. We be with them, and we know how, um, how to meet them best where they are. Jesus wept. I want to talk about how crazy beautiful that statement in verse 35 is. Remember from way back in Hebrews, this is Feels like a long time ago, doesn't it? But way back in Hebrews 1, it says that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And here we see the exact imprint of the nature of God weeping. Say what you want to about God. But you're going to have to talk to John 11.35. If you want to say anything other than God is love, you're going to have to talk to a John 11:35. This is the heart of God. It always has been. Verse 36, the Jews said, see how he loved him. And I want that to be a call to you too this morning. See how he loved him. See how he loves you. See how he loves us. And out of that love, he goes to the tomb. 
like a war horse snorting in anger at the sight of the enemy. He tells them to open it. Praise to the Father in front of them, repeating the purpose statement given throughout the book of John, even for the writing of the book, that they may believe. Do this, that they may believe. There's no possibility. It's four days after. Soul's not floating around up in there anymore. It stinks. Jesus doesn't care. Lazarus, come out. He puts the soul back in the body. The heart starts beating. The lungs start breathing. The blood starts pumping. Lazarus comes out, and they're probably so, like, astounded at what, just like we would be, they're probably so astounded at what happened that Jesus kind of has to prod them to help him out. Help him out of his linens, burial linens. And so we see there, that was the last sign, that was the last miracle that Jesus performs to others in the book of John, closes the book of signs, as it's called, because it points to the miracle of Jesus himself rising from the dead. What does all this mean for us? One thing, obviously, is belief. As Jesus has expressed purpose throughout this story, believe that Jesus is, as Martha said, the Christ, the Son of God. Okay? If we do that, what does that mean for us? In, the, in following the sermon series that we just had, Living the Resurrection, Lazarus was a guy who literally lived the resurrection because he was literally resurrected. But he was resurrected as a mortal. A mortal, not immortal. He was resurrected as a mortal. Jesus' resurrection is altogether different. This isn't, you know, Lazarus' resurrection isn't what Paul is talking about in 1 Corinthians 15 that um, Mike preached from. He's, he wasn't given a new spiritual body, like Paul said. He was raised from the dead, but one day he would die again. And that's kind of how we are too. Let me explain that. Look at the last kind of chunk of our, our passage here. So people went in. Um, and they told the Pharisees about Jesus. Uh, so the Pharisees were kind of worried about what the Romans would do. The, the, the relationship of the Jews to the Romans at this point um, were kind of like kids with a grumpy father who just wants a quiet house and to be left alone. You know, you can have your own space. You can do your own thing in there as long as you respect me and do your chores. But if I hear a ruckus, I'm coming in and I'm taking your space from you and you're not going to like it. They're worried about Jesus inciting mobs and making enough noise to provoke the Romans so that Caiaphas says in verse 50, it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. Let's make Jesus a substitutionary sacrifice. Let's, let's sacrificially, um, let's, let's substitute him in place of the people to quench the anger of the Romans. So they don't come in and take us all. And John tells us this was kind of an unknowing or an ironic prophecy. That Jesus would die for the people to gather the children of God. But the substitution that Jesus makes wouldn't be to satisfy the anger of the Romans. Or to quench, quench their anger or anything like that. It would be to satisfy the eternal justice of God for our sins. He'd be taking on the wrath of God for our sins. Better that one man die for the people. That's the logic of God. And instead of sending someone else, it's the radiance of the glory of God. It's the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God. The rest of the Bible consistently says that in our sins, we were as dead as Lazarus in the tomb, spiritually. We were spiritually dead. And sometimes I think when we say, like, spiritually dead, we hear, like, metaphorically dead. Like, not really dead, but, you know, like, it's an illustration or something. That's not 
how Scripture talks about it. Scripture says our souls were just as dead as Lazarus's body was in the tomb. If we read it, this is multiple places in the New Testament, but if we just look at Ephesians 2, it says, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once, once walked, following the course of the world, following the prince of the air, the spirit that is now work, at work in the sons of disobedience. You were soul zombies, kind of, right? Like you were, your soul was dead and it was walking um, through your body, uh, carrying out whatever it wanted to in sin, deadness and sin. And then it says, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up with him. And that's about what you are now. You were dead. You are alive. Listen to the, the present tense there. You are alive. And, and listen back to, back to Jesus in our passage. I am, present tense, the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, present tense, though he die he shall live. It's not talking about eternal life after you die. Do you notice that? Whoever believes in me shall live. Whoever believes in me. Jesus is the life. He gives life right now in the present wherever he is present. And I think there's a kind of popular misconception about our worldview out there. And it shows up. I've seen it in a few pop songs. Um, so Taylor Swift. We've got some um, Swifties that just went to the Taylor Swift concert in Nashville, and I'm, I'm glad some of them aren't here to uh, listen to me diss her song. But she has a song, uh, I Don't Want to Live Forever, about yearning for a lover here in this world. She wants that instead of um, living an eternal life without him. The Strumbellas had a popular folksy Americana song uh, called Spirits, and it crescendoed in a chorus at the end of the song singing... I don't want a never-ending life. I just want to be alive while I'm here. It's kind of catchy. But these songs kind of imply that to believe or to want eternal life is to kind of twiddle our thumbs in this one waiting for it. We're just sitting here and we're waiting for it. But con contrast that with Christian artist John Foreman's song, Afterlife, where he says, I've tasted fire. I'm ready to come alive. I can't just shut it up and fake that I'm all right. And I wonder, why would I wait till I die to come alive? I'm ready now. I'm not waiting for the afterlife. You and I, we begin forever now. That's the Christian perspective. In the Gospel of John, those who believe in Jesus are not waiting for eternal life. They get to start living it now. Why would I wait till I die to come alive? Why would you wait to die to come alive? What should post-resurrection, pre-death living look like? When we've been dead, made alive, and yet still live in this world of death. We're, we're living in the in-between, the same in-between that Lazarus was. He was raised to life, and yet he was going to die again. We were raised to life spiritually, and yet one day we will die. What should that in-between life look like? To answer that, I want to do a, a little thought experiment with you. What would it have looked like for Lazarus? If we've got kind of a comparison there. What would it have looked like for him? who was dead, made alive, and yet still lived in a world of death. We get a little bit of that in Scripture, not a ton, of, of what his life after this looked like. But let's think about that. There's a play written by Eugene O'Neill almost 100 years ago. Uh, Eugene O'Neill was a, a Nobel Prize winning playwright. And his play was called Lazarus Laughed. And it's basically an artsy 
hypothetical answer to that question. What would happen if we saw the picture, if we, if we saw a story of Lazarus after he was raised from the dead? And Eugene Neal's play, as you could tell by the title, answers that with laughter. Lazarus, in the opening scene of this play, which is it's kind of a funky, um, you know, funny play uh, at parts, but Lazarus is seen stumbling out of the dark, blinking into the sunlight. After the grave clothes are taken off of him, Lazarus gives a gentle, soft laugh, nothing bitter, nothing derisive, an embracing, astonishing, kind of welcoming sound. They ask him, he embraces Jesus, he embraces Martha and Mary. They ask him what his death was like. Uh, the people ask him what his death was like, and he said, there's only life, there's only God. And then he kept laughing. He walked out of the grave laughing. And then Lazarus goes back to his daily tasks, you know, goes back to regular life, but there's something different. He's not anxious anymore. He's not vulnerable to the shadow of death that diminishes the liveliness of life. The house where he lives becomes known as a house of laughter, and night after night you would hear singing and dancing. And the spirits of the one who had come back with this message that there's nothing to fear, um, that, that death is dead, began to spread throughout the whole village. Eventually this keeps going and more people believe. And um, in his story, we, we see uh, in John 12, so if we, this is going back to what actually happened here, right? But in John 12, um, we see, I think this is like verses 9, 10, 11, something like that in John 12. But we see Lazarus um, actually being threatened with death. That's, that the Jewish leaders got together, they said, too many people are believing in Jesus because of this guy Lazarus, who's still walking around even though he was in the tomb for four days. We need to kill him too. So it's kind of loosely based off of this. Back to Eugene Neal's play. Um, he has the emperor Caligula, who is a emperor, Roman emperor, who's very, known for being a sadistic tyrant um, a few years after Jesus' death and resurrection. Um, Caligula, Roman emperor, comes to Lazarus in the play and says, Lazarus, I'm going to kill you. Can you imagine, even if John 12, if it's the Jewish leaders that actually planned to kill Lazarus, Caligula, whoever, could you imagine somebody threatening to kill Lazarus? I mean, I can imagine him laughing at that. Been there, done that, right? What else you got? In O'Neill's play, Lazarus laughed, not mockingly, but still joyously, though even that made Caligula crazier with anger, and then he ends up killing Lazarus, and even he's looking at Lazarus' body, and he can still hear Lazarus laughing. There will be mourning and crying and pain in this world, but as a people who have come from death to life and already died in Christ, we can be a people marked by world-flipping, empire-defying, fear-forgetting, joyous laughter. The early church wasn't filled with people who twiddled away their thumbs waiting for eternity because they knew it was going to happen. They had seen Jesus raised from the dead, and they flipped the world upside down, it says in Acts. They lived risky lives, and they stood against persecution, and they shared what they had with each other and with the poor and with the church. And they, even in the midst of all the uncertainty of the future with the mission of the church, they approached all of it with what? Joy and laughter. That's the kind of picture that we get from Acts. They did this all with joy, not with fear and, and, and the sense of duty and all. No, they were joyous. 
with their biggest fear, their biggest vulnerability, their biggest enemy clearly defeated in Jesus, they took joy in danger, joy in sacrificial suffering, uh, in sacrificial sharing, joy in the face of uncertainty. So until he rises up from the grave, body and soul, which he will do someday, church, let's do that too. Jesus weeping with us leads to his attack on death. I want to tie all this together. Jesus weeping with us leads to his attack on death by his own sacrificial death on the cross and resurrection, leading to our spiritual resurrection if we believe, which should lead us into a world-flipping, empire-defying, fear-forgetting laughter. Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, um, we live in the in-between We live in the in-between, but sometimes it's hard for us to to remember that we were actually dead and you did actually make us alive. Help us to remember that and give us laughter. Amen.